the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. So much has been so dark. So many of our conversations have been so heavy this week that I just thought uh, this could be an interesting kind of turn to make. Kyle Eidelman. He, uh, an article in February in Christianity Today basically says this, that the Bible has a clear and consistent, quote, party theology. Hmm. He says we're called not only to attend them, but also to throw them ourselves. Let me just give you what he says to start. Okay. And then I would just love your kind of reaction to it. He says, quick, what does the, what does God have in common with the Beastie Boys? He says, back in 1986, the Beastie Boys told everyone to fight for their right to party. Back in Leviticus 23, God told everyone to party or he would kill them. I know you're skeptical, he says, but stick with me. In the Old Testament, God set up a series of festivals for his people. They were designed to be commemorative and anticipatory, celebrating what he had done and what he would do. We see Jesus at parties. And then he just goes on to say, in the Bible, there's a clear and consistent party theology. Hmm. Missiologist Alan Hirsch says, party is sacrament. Could it be we have lost something vital God wants for his people. So I'm going to pause there, Aubrey. Kyle Eidelman, Alan Hirsch, all these people are basically saying part of our theology needs to not just be gathering for worship or gathering this, but actually throwing parties to commemorate what God has done, but also to connect with the community around us. Uh, and Hirsch, I, you know, he uh, loves to push the bounds. He calls party yeah, he a he calls party a sacrament. So uh, this idea of party theology, have you heard it? And what do you think about it? The closest thing that this uh, makes me think of is years ago, John Perkins wrote a book about the uh, the kingdom of God as a party. That's not mm-hmm. the title, but um, he he likened sort of the kingdom of God to Disneyland at the time. And, and that may be a little more fraught contextually now, but like kind of just saying, look, the the center of, of the kingdom of God is party. Jesus turning the water into wine, all of these celebrations, annual celebrations, monthly celebrations, regular celebrations. So this reminds me of that. I've never heard anybody talk about a party theology or party sacrament. I think I would personally want to hear more about that. But I like this concept that we are called to remember. We are called to celebrate and that that is a great great way to be invitational Mm -hmm. with our neighbors who may not know Jesus and a great way, I think, for us to begin to experience some of the foretaste of heaven now, right? Like when we have a, when we have a party, by the way, any article at CT that begins with the Beastie Boys is so fun. I love that. I'm in. I'm already sold. I knew you'd be a fan. Um, uh, 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 yeah, I, I like this. I like, 
I like this concept. It does bring a little bit of joy in, in what feels like a really difficult time. And But you know what's funny as I'm thinking about this as I'm an introvert myself. Mm-hmm. So the idea of like, does this mean I have to throw a lot of parties and go to a lot of parties and be an extrovert? It stresses me out a little. I'm, gonna not, I'm not gonna lie. But it's if so it's like true. a fun party with my friends around the table and we're remembering things, everyone has a turn to talk and listen, then I'm in. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Let me take two different avenues with them. I'll ask you about the, the first one, our parties as evangelism. All right. Uh, yeah. It turns out Eidelman writes that throwing a party is a great way to reach people one at a time. And he talks about how his church made an emphasis at this. We asked people to throw parties in a way that would allow them to love and serve others in the name of Jesus. We often think about Aubrey, how do I reach my neighbors, right? How do yeah. I reach my community? What do you think of this idea? Like, is this a an effective evangelism strategy? Uh, you being the evangelism uh, yeah. uh, grad student, is this an effective evangelism strategy? Or let me play devil's advocate. Does mm-hmm. it fall short? Like, oh, you're just throwing a party. You're never actually saying the name of Jesus. You're not actually yeah. calling people to anything. Where do you land on kind of that? Hey, party as evangelism tool. Yeah, uh, I mean, we call the, we call our entire church to throw block parties every year. I'm a Do firm really? believer. Oh yeah, like I'm a firm believer that uh, that parties, block parties in particular, are an evangelism tool. Here's why, though, because they help you get to know your neighbor and they help you get mm-hmm. to build relationship. Anything you're doing to build relationships, especially with non Christian people that are authentic and meaningful and mutual, is an evangelism tool. Therefore, a party is. I agree with you that if you're just like partying to party. That's awesome. That's fun. That's wonderful. But you're not necessarily like inviting people to take a next step towards Jesus. You might be missing out on the evangelism piece of it. Like someone's not going to come to your block party and all of a sudden think, I want to become a Christian. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but for us, here's an anecdote. We've had block parties. Kevin and I have held block parties with some Christians on our block that go to our church for the past four or five years. Now we did it during COVID, but um, the, in because of that, we have built relationships with neighbors down the street that we wouldn't otherwise know. Hmm. And several of those neighbors, not all of them, but several, like a handful of those neighbors, one, for instance, major marital problems came to me and Kevin because they knew, oh, that's the pastors down the street. Maybe they can help us. Another, they're a gay couple that, you know, we love, uh, have come to me and Kevin, t- more Kevin than me talking about what does God say about homosexuality. And so you can't, it, it's like, um, Seeds are planted, relational seeds are planted so that some point down the road, someone may come to you and need your help as a Christian and vice versa. Like, oh, I remember that neighbor does taxes. We desperately need help with our taxes this year. I'm going to go to that neighbor. So it's, I guess, relationship building that leads to the evangelism. That's what I would say. That's good. And let me ask you then the other route here. Uh, and you touched on it before parties within the church, right? Like doing things fun and, yeah. and celebratory in the church as a foretaste of heaven, as mm-hmm. uh, not taking ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. What, what, what role does that play in the life of a, of a local church? I mean, I think you kind of just answered it. Like, let's let, you know, we know that part of our eternity is going to be like celebrating and worshiping Jesus. And so I think anytime you can gather together in community and break bread together, have fun together, share life together, that's just part of the rhythm of, that's the rhythm of, of doing this Jesus life together. And so I, yeah, I mean, I think if, especially if you like parties, <laughs> especially if you it's really like fun. <laughs> if, you, if you don't like parties, you're like, it's the worst thing I want to do. 
uh, you might want a different way to party. I don't know. What do you think, Brian? Uh, The reason I think this is an interesting conversation and one that I think is important for churches and Christians to have is a lot of us who grew up in the church, the word party is a little bit of a bad word. Right. Oh, like, interesting. Okay. You know, don't let your high school kids go to part. And I understand why. Like, there's good reasons for yeah, these. There's some uh, bad partying. Yeah. Correct. But but in general, the word party, or you know, that's why I think you laughed when when you saw that Idleman started with the Beastie Boys here, is like these kinds of things we kind of think are taboo. Right. Churches yeah. don't have parties, and if they do, it's just like you know our own little selves. We're having some, you know. Uh, you know, some good, clean fun. But thinking about our neighborhoods and whatever else, again, there are boundaries. There are things we do and don't do. But this idea of party as sacrament, I don't think is probably something many of us thought of. And I'm not sure it's something a lot of us are comfortable with, but I think it really is worth thinking about. So coming up next, we are thrilled to be joined by someone who hasn't been on in a while, Dr. Ed Stetzer. He's the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Uh, host of the Ed Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, and he does a host of other things as well. We're thrilled that Ed's going to spend some time with us next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, there are only certain people that we give the title of friend to the, of the show. We don't just give that away to anybody, <laughs> We don't just right? dole that out to anybody. We don't. On, we don't right. just give that. And the first person that we titled friend of the show is the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, dean of their school of ministry, and just friend of the show, Dr. Ed Stetzer. Ed, how are you doing today? So much better just being referred to as the friend of the show. I feel like it's a special relationship now. Are you telling me you've actually used it with others? Because it sort of lessens the value of (laughs) you know, it's it's we've never used it with the same emotion and the same attachment. Because I'm I'm local like you have friends of the show around the country, around the world. I'm like a local friend of the show. It's the difference between like that close friend you have and a Facebook friend. Like that's exactly. it's kind of the difference. And which am I? Just so I'm clear what you're referring <laughs> close, to. Close, close, close friend. Close, okay, close friend. <laughs> anyway, Ed, you you write a lot of stuff. You've got a lot of stuff going on. And Aubrey and I were particularly interested the other day in something you wrote. You've got a series going on at Church Leaders about preaching and about all this kind of stuff coming out about the church right now. And you had one about low and infrequent church attendance. And I just want to dive in there because you said something fascinating in it. You said, while regular church attendance used to be once a week or once every other week, it's now regular church attendance should be, uh, if I'm putting words in your mouth here, at once a month. And I was kind of blown away by that as a pastor, even though it kind of fits what I see. So walk us through that a little bit, kind of the changing demographics of the church. And then even more importantly, what does it mean for the church now? Yeah, totally. So let me just say that we can describe a thing and not prescribe a thing. I'm not mm-hmm. encouraging people to who are regularly attending church to go to once a month. But what, <laughs> yes. what, what, what we're seeing is, is that I mean, and a lot of it, there's a lot of shifts going on in culture right now. Of course, COVID has impacted this, right? So mm-hmm. we see that reality. Uh, you know, in our area, churches are 60 percent, 70 percent, you know, but they're all most churches are down. Not all, but most churches are down. But what's happened before COVID that I think COVID accelerated was that churches were People at churches were becoming more mobile on the weekends. And we, we see this. I mean, think about driving down an interstate and there's like a there's like a bunch of hotels at every exit now. Well, that when my parents 
or my grandparents were kids or young adults, they didn't go away for the weekend. That wasn't even an option. Going away was a big thing. It involved, you know, a triple A trip kit and going somewhere and, you know, calling ahead. And Mm. now people just say, well, you know, you can see ads on television, zip away for the weekend. Yeah. So a lot of people zipping away from the weekend. Um, A lot of uh, sports have moved to like kids sports have moved to the weekends to Sunday and more. So what's happened is people who were would say, are you like regularly involved in church? Some would say, yeah, that, that could mean more than once a week. That's, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, maybe Wednesday night. Now it could mean once or twice a month and three times a month seems a lot to the point where like, you know, both of you serve in ministry roles. You know, you recruit people to teach, say, the kids. You often have to recruit two people so they can mm. swap Sundays where right, before right. someone would be there every single week. Right. Mm. And Ed, um, so if, if the landscape is changing for some of the reasons that you said, I guess the next question is, what should pastors be doing? Do we need to be calling people back to church attendance? Do we need to be changing how we consider even uh, the container that church is? Like what, I guess, what, what are you encouraging pastors to do in light of this shift? Yeah, so probably my most popular kind of conference that people ask me to do now is uh, understanding three big shifts post-COVID, where I kind of go through our cultural convulsion, how people are sorting themselves out. I call it the great sort kind of ideologically and then layers of engagement and, dis- and re-engagement. Okay. So that's kind of, but right after that, when I, that's description, I talk about my prescription and my prescription is twofold. Now it's more than this, but it's kind of now we need to elevate our ecclesiology and we need to engage the mission. Now, ecclesiology is not a normal person word. So ecclesiology means our kind of the theology of church. And if one of the things that we're seeing is, is that church is becoming devalued by many people. And some of that, some of that is because we told everybody to watch online. It was just Mm. as good to watch online. And what I would say, it's not really just as good. We need feet and faces, not just electrons and avatars. But I think we have to teach people and remind people, Ephesians 3.10 says God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. Um, It is a privilege to walk in and be among the people of God in this thing called community. And so I think it's a a good, strong thing to say, hey, um, make it your priority to be a part of your local church. You say, well, you know, I love Jesus and I'm part of the universal church. And those things can both be true. But we don't see Christians outside of local church commitment in the New Testament. So what I would say, particularly, you know, we we have so many wonderful listeners here as well. Uh, I'd encourage you to get engaged and involved in a in a in a local church where you're going to live life on life with other people. So part of it is that's elevating our ecclesiology. So mm-hmm. I so I don't think it's good that people are so busy on the weekends they only have you know one weekend a month to go to church. I think we need to prioritize that. But you know, sort of hinted there about possibility Aubrey of other forms. Well. I do think it's good for people to engage. I think online is a tool that people can use. It's not the goal. We need people in community, holding one another accountable, provoking one another to love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says, bearing one another's burdens, as Galatians says. And I think that's going to take the local church community. Yeah, that's a good word. And <clears throat> Ed, we're still kind of in the middle of it. But I know at the beginning of COVID, you were you were way out front helping church leaders, helping pastors know what to do. It feels like, uh, knock on wood, we're kind of coming out of it a little bit again right now and things are getting back to normal. 
How did COVID, in your opinion, like what's the book going to say that this is how COVID changed the church for good? What What are some of your thoughts about what COVID has done? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book kind of looking through that, but it's too early to tell. I'm going to be on sabbatical starting in July, try to hmm. do some research on this. Um, I mean, sabbatical from Wheaton administration. Mm-hmm. I'm going to going to write the book. Um, and because I, I think um, I don't think people are coming back as people thought they would come back after COVID. I think that um, what's happened, and I want to make sure I don't go long in the segment, but what's happened is um, think in terms of, uh, of a, uh, you know, we got all kinds of listeners, but think in terms of a Pentecostal church. Pentecostal churches, people sit up front who are super involved. In my church, they sit in the back who are super involved, but that's the difference <laughs> in denomination. <laughs> uh, uh, so, but, so think in terms of 100 people at a Pentecostal church on a given Sunday. The front third seems to have gotten more involved. That's why most churches have experienced financial collapse. Hmm. Um, they're actually giving is uh, 2019 giving compared to now for most churches is at or above their 2019 giving. Okay. So the front third, people are giving more, serving more, engaged more. The second third, people are sort of hanging on. They're, they're not as engaged. Um, the back third is the thing I think we'll write books about. So the back third on a given Sunday of 100 people, those people come Christmas, Easter, and a few other times right. on a given Sunday. The, so loosely connected people appears to have, they appear to have mostly, if not completely disconnected. So, yeah. so your super involved people are still there, but you're like, well, we have 25% less people in the Chicagoland area at a lot of churches. Where do they go? Those are the people. And I hope this Easter will seize this evangelistic opportunity. So the front third that's engaged and involved can partner with the second third, help them get more engaged and involved and go reach the back third that may have completely mm, dropped out. Yeah. Yeah. And Ed, we're thrilled that you're going to stay with us uh, for a, a little bit while longer for another segment. But before we get into that, I, I kind of want to close the door on COVID for the people listening who haven't gone back. They're that third that's just not there. You're yeah. pastor at heart. Could you pastorally just share with them like, you need to get back. Why do they need to go back? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I serve as a teaching pastor here at High Point Church. That's in, right. That's in, right. In the western suburbs. And so we deeply care. We, we, we know that, again, part of God's intent is that we would be in community with other people. There's yeah. no such thing in the Bible as a Lone Ranger Christian. Mm. And we need the team that is the body of Christ. Imperfect though it is, frustrating though we may have disagreements with them in the past year, we need one another. For 2,000 years, Christians have seen the church as an essential part of their spiritual life journey. And I want to encourage our listeners to do the same. That's great. Dr. Ed Stetzer is the executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, uh, dean of the School of Mission, Ministry and Leadership, also the host of the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. We're talking to Ed about all sorts of things, including his six part series over at churchleaders.com. You can read uh, a bunch of what Ed had to write there in this six part series. But Ed, I want to <clears throat> ask you a question. I, I follow you and a lot of people on Twitter. Aubrey and I do a lot of things uh, research every day for the show. And sometimes you can start to feel like everything's so fragmented in the evangelical world. Uh, Christian Twitter's a really mean place these days. Yeah. Uh, so a two-part question, how do you not get just kind of overwhelmed by that and just Maybe I'm assuming maybe you do get overwhelmed by that and sad by it. And do you think that's actually a microcosm or the church or is that just Twitter and kind of a a very small segment? Yeah, super question. And let me say first, there's one title you forgot, and that's Aubrey's Professor. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Most of all. Yes, that's right. His most honorable title. And you are. Are you walking in May, Aubrey? Are we going to see your graduation? I am walking in May. I'm so excited. We're planning a little party. I'll share with that offline. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
So wait. congratulations. She's going to be graduating you. from the Wheaton College Graduate School. Congrats to her. Been great to be her professor and friend on the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I think, um, uh, let me start with a weird example. 2,000 years ago, there was a uh, metal that became widely used in the Roman Empire. And that metal was uh, particularly malleable, or I think of terms of bendable or moldable. And uh, it, it enabled, actually, the Roman villas 2,000 years ago among the rich to have hot and cold running water. And it's, it's amazing. There was a million people in Rome. It was a technological marvel and more. They took this metal. They made plates out of it. They made bowls out of it because it was just this amazing, bendable, malleable, moldable metal. Um, and the challenge was is that metal, they would later find out, was called lead. And Ooh. it would have significant, I mean, think in terms of drinking and eating and, and every, all your water coming through lead pipes. And some would say it's kind of a, not a mainstream view that, that part of the, the madness that came to Rome, well, was from this. Well, here's what mm. I want to say. I know what you'd miss, right? So 2000 years ago, their technology was feeding them. Think of the bowls and cups was feeding them and killing them at the same time. Hmm. And I think um, wow. social media is the lead pipes of our day. Wow. It is a technological yeah. marvel. It's uh, it's feeding us and killing us at the same time. And hmm. I would say just not just social media. People are being discipled by their cable news choices. They're being spiritually yeah. shaped by their social media. And yeah. the end result is, is that it's led to very divided world on hmm. Twitter. And, so, you know, Twitter's the worst. Um you know, Instagram, people just post in nice pictures and everyone's <laughs> yes. smiling, yeah. and, you know, and Facebook, some mix of those two. But I, so what I would say is um, you need to, I think for our listeners, if your social media, for example, and I, I said this, I was preaching at Saddleback uh, in August and uh, they dealt with some of this. And, and, I, and I said at that church, listen, if your cable news choices are causing you to be out of fellowship with your local church, because you're angry all the time, because it's hmm. making you mad, because you're, you're you're getting views of your pastor or your elders that aren't true. I said, if it's causing you to be at a fellowship with local church, turn it off, unsubscribe from it, unplug it, and choose your church over cable. Hmm. And again, this can be ideologically on either direction. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is I, I do think, and I, I actually call it the great sort, is that people are sorting themselves into churches that align with them ideologically, where... You know, you're both in, in church staff leadership. You know, 10 years ago, we would say, well, you have people from all different ideological right. backgrounds, mm-hmm. races, ethnicities, yes. uh, political parties come here. Now it's less likely to be the case. And I think one of the things we learned is people were being discipled more by outside forces than their local churches. Mm. Wow. And, and what a what a call that is to the local church to to r- really reimagine what our discipleship should mm-hmm. look like mm-hmm. uh, so that those powers aren't aren't the ones owning our people. I think that's so fascinating, Ed. Um, Ed, again, we've been talking about this series you've been publishing on cultural shifts and biblical illiteracy. And the most recent article you just published today was communicating with confidence when people distress pastors. And so I actually want to ask you two questions based on that title. One, I mean, I think we have some guesses based on what you've said, but why are more and more people distressing pastors? And then two, how can pastors communicate with confidence in light of that? Yeah. Uh, first, I think they're distressing pastors because a lot of pastors have done distrustful things. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah. you know, you know, we're in Chicagoland. I mean, our listeners, we can point to examples. We I mean, this has rocked our community. Yeah. And so I think that's part of it is 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 part of it. But, but the reality is, you know, most of us 
didn't go to churches that where the pastors, uh, you know, did things wrong or, or had failures or things of that sort. Yet, I think there's a question of people are questioning everything right now. One of the things in a cultural convulsion, that's that's part of the language talking about. Everything's convulsing. Everything's changing. Um, one of the things we do is we question sources of authority and leadership. So in that article, um, you know, I want to talk about people are going to have to remind people that, you know, the who don't even necessarily believe the word of God. But this is the word of God is that which upon we stand that Jesus death on the cross for our sin in our place changes everything that we look to the word of God as our eternal and unchanging truth. Um, and, you know, and I think it's good for pastors to be transparent, uh, you know, within reason to be transparent on their own journeys and struggles. Because right now, I think we're in a season when everyone in culture is distrusting everybody else, uh, mm. or almost everyone's distrusting everybody else, mm-hmm. and and it impacts pastors as well. But we're, you know, in Chicagoland, we're in a unique season that we've walked through as well. And it's okay to acknowledge that, and I just want to make sure my pastor is a person of integrity and character, and, and I think we all want that. And, and that's going to be about governance and elders and processes. Uh, but I think having done that, we can also say, we still live in a time when leaders are mistrusted and pastors are mistrusted. Let's let's earn that trust through 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 right living, right conduct, right character. Mm. And then let's also point people back to the word of God and Jesus as the ultimate thing that they can trust, the ultimate person they can trust. That's a good word. And, and something that I appreciate about you, you're writing, you're speaking, you're very pro-church. You love the church. You're for the church and you want to see it flourish. Uh, coming out of COVID, we got all this politics, Twitter, we talked about all this stuff. Are you hopeful for the church, mm. right? Do you, do you still look forward five years, 10 years, 20 years and go, yeah, I'm hopeful for where the church is heading or are we, you know, do you feel like there's a lot more pain coming? What Give us your thoughts on the future of the church. Yeah. So I would say well, I'm always like perpetually hopeful because I've read yeah. the end of the book and Jesus wins. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But, but I would say, I think that the cultural convulsion we're going to be in, and I wrote about this in, uh, in my outreach magazine column a couple of issues ago, the cultural convulsions, if we look at the past in the 60s and the late 1800s and the mid 1800s, they tend to last about four to six years. So I think that as COVID wanes, we hope, you know, I, we, we want to see that. I, I still remember July 7th through 11th in 2021. I feel a little tricked because I was ending that time too. And then, <laughs> then, we, then Omicron became the conversation. Yeah. Um, but, but what I would say is it, it probably means we're going to need a few more years of some culturally divis- divisive um, conflict. And I would say Christians, pastors, church leaders, but just all of us listening are going to need reservoirs of resilience to make it through. The next few years, um, we're going to need to stand up for what's right. We're going to need to do so in ways that honor the Lord and are winsome, mm-hmm. um, but also are not always going to be understood by the world. It's wow. going to be a harder time to be a Christian in the next few years. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think we're through that. So am I discouraged by that? Well, uh, you know, let me say this. Um, 1960s was the last time we saw a cultural convulsion like this. Mm-hmm. And 1968 was the peak of it. I mean, Chicago had, um, you know, we saw the Democratic National Convention was here and you can actually see pictures of, you know, the, the Mayor Daly sent people out to Grant Park to break open everybody's heads. And there were mm-hmm. Vietnam War protests and civil rights protests. And Martin Luther King was assassinated that year and Bobby Kennedy. And they had a pandemic that year. It was uh, it was actually called the your grand, grandparents would have called the Hong Kong flu huh. uh, H3N2. But in the midst of all that, the Jesus people movement started. And so I think that where I'm encouraged is in the midst of the cultural tumult and convulsion is often the time when we see revival come. And that's what I'm yeah. praying for. And yeah. actually, a lot of our listeners will start to see uh, ads, a major national campaign called He Gets Us. That's actually about Jesus. I mean, mm. a huge national campaign from 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 all different kind of donors who are saying, 
We want people talking about Jesus. And I think this could be an opportunity that could be a spiritual breakthrough. Mm. It's going to be hard, but that in hard times, we see the Lord break through in powerful ways. That's a great word. Thank you for that. Again, Ed Stetzer, Wheaton College, also the host of the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. I think I think my co-host may pop up there at some point. We have recorded one. We are ready. I run soon. I'm very excited for that. You can find the articles we've been discussing at churchleaders.com, edstetzer.com, and check them out on Twitter at Ed Stetzer. Ed, you're a great friend of the show. We're really grateful for the time. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Ed. Thank you. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. All right, Aubrey, we've got a new segment that we've been doing. We're, mm-hmm. we're testing this one out, and it's off to a rocket start. I've got to oh, be honest. Fun. We are calling it the social media water cooler. So we post something uh, on our Facebook account or whatever. A, a, in this case, it's a tweet of somebody's that we want to discuss, but it might just be a question for yeah. people. And they weigh in. Here's what we've learned is when your social media people get involved, it goes crazy. Absolutely. So here is what we uh, we want to discuss. Brian Loritz on Twitter uh, tweeted a quote from J.D. Greer. So J.D. Greer is somebody you and I have high respect for, uh, was recently the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, heavy into the church planting world. We have it's safe to say we have a good amount of respect for J.D. Greer, right? Absolutely. That's safe yep. to say. Yep. Okay. Here was J.D. Greer's quote. J.D. Greer said, on exchanging church attendance as a family for the kids' athletic events, he said, some of us care more about where our kids will go to college than where they will spend eternity. That is J.D. Greer retweeted by Brian Loritz. So I told you I had heavy thoughts. I had lots of thoughts about yeah, this. Yeah, you did. And we decided let's send it up to our social media people. Let's send it out to our audience, get their feedback, and then we will discuss. So why don't you tell us a little bit of the flavor of the feedback we've received? Yeah, it's interesting because I I assumed – that a lot of the feedback would actually agree with J.D. Greer and mm-hmm. say things like, yes, we've made kids sports an idol. We need to be back in church. That's what mm-hmm. I that's what I expected. I'll be honest. But instead, um, things people were not happy with J.D. Greer. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were were very, very upset that it would um Basically, most people were saying, look, my kids are in sports or were in sports growing up. That doesn't mean we're not a Christian family and I'm not concerned about where they spend eternity. Mm-hmm. And I would say now, there's a lot to read. So let me just share a few things. Yeah, one pick per- one or two. Okay. One person said, and I think this is actually really helpful and this was actually really measured. One person said, I think there is truth in this part of the statement. Some of us care more about where our kids mm. go to college and where they will uh, spend eternity. And she said, perhaps for those people, this is an important call back to church or back to uh, balance or back to, you know, putting the things of God first. She said there were two prodigal sons. Right. And so mm. I, I think that was really I appreciated that. I thought that was very measured. Other people said, look, uh, just because you don't go to church on Sunday, that doesn't make you less of a Christian. Now, I actually have a little bit. I I don't think that's actually accurate either. We can unpack that later if you want to. And I kind of push back on that one a little bit. Um, 
other people like you, Brian, well, well, I'll let you talk for yourself, but you Mm -hmm. said you've got kids uh, who are playing sports, but also your pastor. And then here's, here's one that I think represents everybody. I think the quote is legalistic and extreme. And actually, my kids learned way more about walking in faith, even in adversity, loving always anyway, and persevering out on the soccer field or during long distance races than they ever did in church. (laughs) In fact, my kids learned early on from folks teaching their Sunday school classes or or even preaching that they felt quite short from the lofty reputation of those people. Mm. This quote implies the narrow notion that salvation requires a pew and a steeple, it ignores the fact that even great churches are far from perfect. Mm. And by the way, many times Christians are compelled in God's own words to go and not sit. Mm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So here's, I'm super grateful. So many comments. It's been really fun to read them. Uh, I land, I want to have my cake and eat it too here, Aubrey. I I feel that way too, Brian. Go ahead. So I wrote on your wall, I wrote, I'm a pastor and a parent who has kids playing sports that sometimes play on Sundays. And so uh, I, my wife and I wrestle with this. We really do because I want to hold the value of church really high for our church, Mm -hmm. but also for my children. Like I want them to go to church when they're out of my house. Like I want them to go. On the other hand, here is their reality. People speak of this, like at least in our area, like there's a third option. And once your kids hit a certain age, there's not a third option. Mm. Okay. Uh, so my son, my son plays pretty high level baseball. So there, when baseball season's going on, there's lots of tournaments. Tournaments tend to fall across the entire scope of the weekend. Right. And so here's the question that my wife and I have had to wrestle with. For us, it's not a question of does my son play a, a, a on a team that doesn't play on Sundays. For my for what it really is is does my son play baseball or not play baseball? Because to play baseball mm-hmm. at the level and the age that he yeah. is yeah. for those three months, it's going to land on Sundays. Yeah. So it becomes a question of do I want my son to be able to play baseball? with his friends, on a team, whatever else? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to tell him, hey, Jay, you can't play baseball anymore because you have to go to church? Yeah. And I think that's setting him up for a lot of bitterness (laughs) and a lot of uh, anger. I have a daughter who plays an occasional volleyball on Sundays. So do we tell her you can't play on this team or not? On the other hand, I want want my kids to have a high, high value Mm -hmm. of church. And so... The way we've landed on it is when they don't have these games, when it's out of season, when these aren't going on, we put a really high value on church. They are going to be in church. They are going to go to youth group. They're going to be in Sunday school. Uh, Now I'm, you know, talking out of a third side of my mouth. I'm not a family that when I go on vacation, we go to church. So people have a problem with that. Right. My biggest problem with J.D. Greer here and his quote is, and I'm sure there's context to it that we could be losing. To say that everybody who lets their kids play sports on Sunday, it cares about what that like, I don't let my kid play baseball so that he'll get a scholarship. I don't care if he plays beyond high school in high school. I want him to enjoy it now. Right. Right. To enjoy this now. And to suggest that people who let their kids play sports that may over overlap on Sundays care more about a college scholarship than the eternal destiny of their kids, I not only think is an overstatement, Aubrey, I think it's dangerously unfair. Yeah, I, I, I would I would go a little bit further, too, and say, um, it, it, you know, <laughs> because you let your kid play sports 
and sometimes those sports are on Sundays does not mean you don't care about your kid going to heaven. Like that, right. that was so extreme to me. And I'm with you. I respect J.D. Greer. Assuming, again, there's some context we're missing here. Uh, uh, but it this, this so borders on legalism. Like mm-hmm. you must be in church every Sunday morning or your kids will go to hell. Like yeah. that's the extreme version of what he's saying. And, yeah. and I, there are some people in here who said, look, my kids are playing sports because it's really good for their mental, physical, and social health. Not, they might not even play in high school. It's mm-hmm. not about mm-hmm. that. They know we value the local church and the gospel. There are some Sundays we miss. I feel great about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say on top of that, what are you going to say then to the people in your church who occasionally have to work on Sundays? Mm-hmm. What are you going to say to the people who, you know, whatever else it might be, whatever. Now, I do think our program director, Marcus Brown, brought up a great point in mm-hmm. the con- in the context here uh, in the chat. He said, we have a uh, we've got to have a conversation about Sabbath. We yeah. always talk about Sabbath just as rest. But he says we have a basically a deficient view of Sabbath mm-hmm. as worship and the worship. And I get that. I will be honest. Like if we could just be really honest to people when my son goes and plays baseball on Sunday and maybe this is the Holy Spirit or maybe this is my legalism from growing up. When my son goes and plays baseball on Sundays, I do feel a little guilty as the pastor. Interesting. (laughs) I do. Okay. And I get that. But I don't – I am not willing to look him and say you can no longer – and I I, hopefully people understand this. Yes, he could play Park District, but the Park District, at least where we are at his age, kids can barely throw the ball. Like you're essentially telling them you either have to choose to play or not play based on this. And that's just – there isn't a third option. And I understand people want to shake their fist at it. I respect people who say, well, we're going to choose option A. You're in church every Sunday. I'm not. I think you can have your cake and eat it too here yeah. with some intentionality, yeah. with some conversation. So social media water cooler. This is fun. It's so fun. We'll see what we'll see what we post next week. But be sure you're engaging with our social media so that we can hear from you. And I have to be honest, Aubrey, I've been off off Facebook a lot. So I've you've really carried the water cooler here. I'm, I'm going to do better next week. I wish you put would. My- I, I do have some feelings about it. And I sure do wish you would because i want to hear from your people Brian. yeah no next week i'm committed okay. to it. it's really just been a notion that i've been off of facebook i've been yeah, trying to stay healthy. off that's but good. nope nope for the show for the social media water cooler <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna carry it with you next week that's my commitment for you how's that sound all right thank you i i really really appreciate that i feel like you were bitter a little bit I, I was a little i was a little bitter i was gonna vent about it at our next grinds my gears but you've, you've, <laughs> i've cut you you've off made it okay <laughs> You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled today to be joined by Jason Porterfield. Jason has made his home in places abandoned by society, from Canada's poorest neighborhood to the slums of Indonesia, and he is passionate about cultivating God's shalom wherever it is painfully absent, also passionate to help churches embrace their peacemaking vocation. And he's got a new book out called Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout the Holy Week. Cannot wait to uh, talk with you, Jason, about this book. But first of all, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, you know, I just I just said a lot about you, Jason. You're in Canada. You're in Indonesia. You're passionate about God's shalom. Can you just tell us a little bit about your story before we dive into the book? 
Sure. So back in 2007, I joined a group called Servants. Servants is an international network of Christian communities who all feel called to live and minister among the urban poor. And so uh, in 2007, I left my home in Pennsylvania and moved into Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a section of Vancouver known as the downtown east side. And I helped start a community there. And after about three years there, I had gathered enough people together to start another community in a slum in Jakarta, Indonesia. Hmm. We were there for about a year. Thankfully, that community is still there. But after a year, I came back and oversaw the sending office for for servants. And I I now live down in in Houston, Texas. Hmm. Uh, tell me more about that, Jason. What you said, people who feel called to live in the poorest areas. I think a lot of people listening are going, that sounds like a crazy calling. What was it going on in your soul that you were like, you know what, I want to move to a place that nobody else wants to really, quite frankly, move to? Yeah, you know, back in college, I think it was my junior year, I kind of got roped in during spring break to lead a a spring break service trip or missions trip to Camden, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It it was officially ranked the worst city in the United States that year. And there I met a community of Christians who had all left good paying jobs to move into that city and were just shining the light of Christ in that neighborhood, uh, contending and working for the flourishing of their neighbors. And after I left there, I felt like God was saying, you know, the Camden, New Jersey's of the world world are everywhere. Find mm. your Camden, New Jersey. And uh, so I eventually learned about this group called Servants. It was actually started out of New Zealand by a man who moved into the slums in Manila. Mm. Um, and so for most of its history, the communities have all been in slums of some of the mega cities of Southeast Asia. But when I joined, they were wanting to blur that false dichotomy between home and field and see what it looked like to live it out in the West as well. Mm. Okay, wow, that sounds so amazing. I feel like there's so many questions we could talk to you about <laughs> that, Jason, but I do want to um, hear a little bit about your brand new book, Fight Like Jesus. I'm sure some of what you're talking about now inspired you to write this book, but can you tell us more about what inspired you to write this, Fight Like Jesus? Sure. Well, so like I said, in 2007, I moved into the downtown east side. It's a it's a small neighborhood, four by eight city blocks. But it, on any given night, there's an average of 1,200 people experiencing homelessness, uh, 5,000 neighbors struggling with addictions to drugs, and over 900 women trapped in prostitution. Mm. So I knew about all that before I moved to the neighborhood. But that was about the extent of my homework. But mm. soon after I arrived, the jury trial began in a nearby courthouse for Robert Picton, the man whom we would soon all learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. Oh, wow. wow. So for over a decade, Picton would drive into the downtown east side, pick up a woman engaged in prostitution, take her back to his farm, and kill her. Oh. And by the time of his arrest, as he later confessed, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women. Oh, just my word. Yeah. Just one shy of his goal. And so, you know, needless to say, my neighbors were devastated, they were scared, and they were angry. And Mm -hmm. it didn't take long before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. Mm. I moved there thinking of myself as a peacemaker. In other words, I I wanted to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet broken neighborhood. But it didn't take long before I realized that I had no idea how to make peace. Mm. So, So one day I dragged myself to church and it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And just like at, at most churches, this church turned the day into a joyous occasion. You know, the, the kids parading through the sanctuary, waving palm branches, everyone chanting Hosanna, upbeat hymns. And, and I just was in no mood to participate. Mm. So I remember sitting in, in the pew and just crying out to God in prayer and saying, God, 
teach me how to be a peacemaker. And soon after the pastor, he began to preach and, and I wasn't in any mood to listen to his feel-good message. message. Mm. So I opened up the Gospels, turned just randomly to the Gospel of Luke, and I began to read his account of Palm Sunday. And that's when I noticed something that's forever changed my life and ultimately sparked the writing of this book. Luke tells us that while the crowds were shouting cheers, Jesus was shedding tears mm. as he made his triumphal entry into the city. Mm. And when he could remain silent no more, he cried out for everyone to hear, if only you knew on this of all days, the things that make for peace. Mm. And so mm. it's taken years to unpack the implications of that discovery. But as I sat in that pew all those years ago, I knew I had discovered where the answer to my prayer was to be found. Mm. In other words, if I was ever going to be effective at confronting injustice and, and waging peace, then I needed to study the greatest peacemaker's greatest week, mm. or what we often refer to as Holy Week. Yeah, yeah that's really powerful, Jason. Uh how would you define peace? Help people understand what the peace of Christ and this peace that you're speaking of is. Great question, because we, we use the word peace in so many different ways. But the, the biblical concept of peace is rooted in the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word that, that describes wholeness or flourishing or, or health. It's when all things are as they ought to be, as God intends for them to be. So it's a flourishing in our relationship with each other, with God, with creation, with ourselves. So this sort of peace, it's not just the absence of violence. Uh, this sort of peace, it cannot coexist with injustice. It's the flourishing uh, of humanity. Mm. Oh, that's so good, Jason. And Jason, as um, folks are picking up your book and reading it, I think this is a really timely book right now during Lent. What um, is your, what's your biggest hope for readers? Sure. Well, my hope, is, it's twofold. For those who already feel like they have a commitment to to they see themselves as peacemakers. I hope this book will equip them to be more effective in that task, that vocation. And then for those who've never thought about some of Jesus's uh, pretty vocal peace teaching, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, etc. I hope this book will help them flesh out what that looks like. You know, in the downtown East side, uh, I had all so much of Jesus's peace teaching memorized, especially from like the Sermon on the Mount. But what I struggled in the messiness of the downtown east side was to figure out, for example, how do I love my enemies and my neighbor when my mm -hmm. enemy is oppressing my neighbor? Mm -hmm. and, and the great thing about Holy Week is it's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. And so formally abstract principles like uh, be merciful, they find concrete expression and those lofty ethical ideals like love your enemies, they become grounded in actual events. So it's just, uh, I've, I believe Holy Week is the best way to be equipped as a peacemaker. And so that's why this book goes day by day through Jesus's last week. Oh, mm. Fantastic, Jason. Jason, where can people learn more about you? Where can they buy the book? They can buy the book wherever books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the local bookstore to help support. Uh, and then the best place they can go is my website, jasonporterfield.com. There they can actually download the first chapter of the book to read if they want to check that out first. And I also have another free resource there right on the homepage called 100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing. And so they could also get that for free. Oh, so good. Again, you can learn more about Jason and his book, Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week at jasonporterfield.com. You can connect with him on Twitter at JG underscore Porterfield. Jason, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you.
You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and we are joined by two incredible guests, Christy Anthony and Hannah Weehunt with SOS International. And if you have missed any of our conversation, I would love to invite you. I would implore you, actually, to go back and catch up on our podcast. I want you to hear what God is doing around the world through the work of SOS. One of the questions that I, I wanted to ask you, Hannah and Christy, is how do you keep going yourself? Because I just even hearing some of the descriptions of the things that you've seen and the things you know, and I'm sure you're being even a little more cautious for our audience. So you've seen more, you know more than you're even saying here. How do you find the strength to keep doing the work that you're doing? Um, well, it's a it's a different different and different seasons, I would say, for me personally. It's looked like a lot of counseling. It's looked like a lot mm-hmm. of good community. It's mm-hmm. looked like a lot of friends who've said, hey, you're not good. Let's talk. Yeah. You know, and Chrissy had mentioned earlier the power of community, right? And man, that's so true in our own lives personally. Mm-hmm. Who's your community? Who are the people around you? But there's something so beautiful to me about going and sitting with someone in their suffering. Mm. I think we like to avoid suffering, right? Because uh, it's so uncomfortable and yeah. it's, it's hard to be in. But the power that comes when you don't bring answers, you just say, hey, I'm here in it with you. I'm here in it with you and I believe you're going to get through this. And I believe we're going to find a path out together. And so getting to do that with women who've, I mean, they have been to the pit of hell. Yeah. And getting to come alongside them in that pit and say, nah, there's a ladder here. Let's find mm-hmm. it. And I'll sit with you until we can find it. Mm-hmm. Um, man, I would, I would climb in a pit every day if, because I know there's ladders. Yeah. You know, I yeah. know that they can get out of that. Yeah. I know that they can find a way out of that. So throw all the pits my way. I'll go in there and sit with them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing the power of going into someone's suffering and telling them they can find a way out. Mm-hmm. So good. I think part of it's learned over time though, right? I mean, even as you said that when we were earlier in this journey, it it definitely was overwhelming, right? Like we would have moments of just needing to look everybody in the eye and just, are you okay? And Mm. really do those assessments. And it's like, there's a grace to walk in it, but also there's a faith that comes when you begin to see transformation. And like she said, I mean, you learn to look for the ladders. You learn to look for the hope. You learn... Mm this looks grim. This looks like the belly of hell, but the story doesn't end here. Mm. And I think that as we've learned to walk it, there are definitely days and moments where you meet a girl and you hear her story and you just got to go cry for the rest of the day. Like that day is done. Your heart is just broken. Right. But by and large, there is that sense of faith of like, Mm. you're going to get through this. You are. Mm. And we can help you find a ladder. Mm hmm. The story doesn't end here. Yeah, so good. So good. Thank you so much for sharing your hearts in that. Listeners, I, I want you to hear some of the language that was just shared from Hannah and Christy. They talked about the power of community and they talked about those ladders. And it's going to bring me to tears thinking about the fact that as um, AM 1160 Hope family, we're a community that can actually partner together right now in providing some of those ladders literally out of hell for young girls and women around the world. And for those of us, especially who call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is really a moment and an invitation where you're being asked 
to stand boldly against evil. And this is a moment where you get to um, really put a, a stake of faith in the ground by saying, I, I will no longer allow this injustice to thrive. And I will no longer allow a young girl who is my daughter in Christ, who is my sister in Christ to sit at the bottom of the pit. Instead, what what I'm going to do is with the, the small resources that I have, I'm going to partner together as a, as a community here in Chicago and provide some of those ladders for these girls. I think this is a call right now from God to you. And I want you to hear that. I want you to hear the seriousness of it. And I want you to hear um, the personal call on your life that you're being asked and really invited in a beautiful way to partner with SOS and to partner with God to, to fight against evil and darkness in this world. During this month of rescue, we're praying that our listeners will provide 80 months of loving care to women and children who are making the choice to leave their lives of bondage and slavery. Your gift of $150 covers one month of their care, safe shelter, food, medical attention, counseling, restoration ministry, education, skills training. Basically, you will be giving them a chance at a whole new life. Amazing to think how much impact your gift will have in the lives of women and children who have been trapped in the slavery of the global sex trade. And if you give right now, a generous matching partner will double whatever you provide to give twice as much love and care to these women. I hope that encourages you to be extra generous. Please give your gift now by calling 866-343-4717. Again, that's 866-343-4717. Or if it's more convenient, you can also give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com. So Hannah and Christy, with that, I would love to hear, I know part of what you're doing is we get to give a $150 gift today, and that actually goes to provide a month's worth of rehabilitation and restoration for a young girl. So can you talk to us about that $150, why it matters and what it goes to? I mean, it matters because it's the difference between life and death for these girls, honestly. I mean, it is the extension of hope, right? It is what it costs to feed, house, create opportunities for education and counseling. I mean, it's, it's subsidized by a lot of grants, but at the end of the day, like for every girl we take in, it costs us $150 a month to just extend that hope and that help and that healing to them in a very practical living expenses kind of way. And one of the things that I know is that you, it's actually, you need that $150 in advance in order to be able to bring restoration to this young girl. So it actually is helpful to literally equip you to do the work that you do. And so that's why listeners, we're asking right now for you to partner with SOS in that $150 gift so they can go rescue some more girls. They can offer more months of restoration. And it would be a a beautiful thing if today our AM 1160 community and family provided, I don't know, 100 months, 70 months of restoration and rehabilitation for these girls. Maybe Christine Hand, you could explain this a little bit better, but helping girls get out and then providing food, water, education. I mean, there are other things that go into that $150. Yeah. You said that it's it's helpful, right? You're like, it's helpful to rescue these girls if we have the funds. I'm going to rephrase that and say it's critical. Amen. There we you go. We cannot do it. Yeah. It's not helpful. It's impossible if we don't have people coming alongside us. And I think sometimes when we hear of an invitation like this, there's a lie that can pop into our heads that, oh, that's not really doing that much. Mm. There's this lie that pops in that just, it's just giving money. That's not doing that much. It is critical. These girls will not come out if we do not have the resources available to meet them. 
And we have people ask us all the time, I can't go into a brothel, what can I do? And the answer is you can provide a pathway of freedom for them. It's critical. They can't walk something that's not there. So that 150, food, water, um, these women have massive medical needs. If you can just imagine that type of abuse, massive medical needs that they need met. There's the vocational training. There's education that plays a role in it. If we can just think of all the things that we need to sustain ourselves, we need those for these women, right? They need to have a good full life with food, safe place to live, education, hope for the future. Please give your gift now by calling 866-343-4717. Again, that's 866-343-4717. Or if it's more convenient, you can also give by clicking the SOS banner at 1160hope.com. We hope you are encouraged by that conversation. And thanks again for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.